This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. And Father, that is our prayer, that you would show us Jesus. We know if we, we see him, we'll be changed. So Father, I pray that you, this morning, would use your holy scriptures to point us to the living word, the word who became flesh, who made his dwelling among us, whose glory we have seen is full of grace and truth. Father, I ask that through your scriptures, you would show us your word, King Jesus, and that in our hearts, we would declare him as Lord today. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen. I've heard, I don't know if it can be confirmed, but I have heard that the internet hasn't always been around. <laughs> I'm going to have to take some of your word, word on that um, because it feels like for my whole life it has been. Now, I know that's not true, but it just is hard to imagine a world where you can't ask Siri to get you someplace, you know, to where you would have to use what they call these paper maps. Um, and I guess people used to carry them in their car and you would have different quadrants and you would look for things and you'd have to know street names and um, all sorts of crazy stuff that we just can't imagine in our world anymore today. I started thinking, um, as I was sort of trying to live into this passage a little bit, the way that communication and, and the way that we communicate information has changed over time. Agreed? And so in the beginning, the, the primary mode of communication was orally. And so you had people who would actually gather around fires, around tables, um, in synagogues, and, and there would be a storyteller. And the storyteller would recount um, a story, and, and people would ask questions, and people would dialogue, and for a long time, Communication happened primarily in circles rather than as individuals. I don't know if you've ever stopped and paused long enough to think about just how different that would have been. Here's what that would have meant for us. That learning and education happened primarily, maybe solely, arguably, in community. That there was somebody that had a body of knowledge that people would get together and hear it together, that they would discuss it together, and that formation and the growing of their intellect, their heart, and their mind happened in circles, not in offices. Well, in 1450, we had a dramatic, significant change in the trajectory of the way that information is communicated. In 1450, the printing press was invented. Now, it's hard to believe, I know, but before the printing press was invented, the majority of the population, one, could not read, and two, did not have 20 Bibles in their home. I know this is hard to believe for some. So 1450, things start to change. Even when the New Testament epistles were written, the churches would get a letter, and they would sit around in a home with as many people as they could pack in, and they would read this letter together. Now, nobody took the letter and went and said, let me parse all the verbs. Let me study all the nouns. Let me, let me find out what's, it was a discussion. Hey, what do you think Paul was talking about when he said this? Did he really mean 
that were new creations, and they discussed. Well, in 1450, things started to change because one of the first documents mass-produced by the printing press was, you guessed it, the Bible. Now, please hear me. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that that is a bad thing. I think that's a brilliant thing. That's a good thing. I simply want to make the point that when that happened, things changed dramatically. And instead of one person having the scriptures and having the knowledge and telling people what it said, the goal, one of the goals of the Reformation was, let's get every single person to have one of these in their hand so that they can study, so that they can learn, so that they can engage with God, which is a great thing. Please hear me. It's a wonderful thing. It was a needed thing. But what started to happen, you saw this transition that started in 1453, 54, when the first Bible was starting to be mass produced. And it was accentuated during the Reformation where the reformers said, yes, every person should study the scriptures on their own. They should engage with God. They should know God. They should go to God. They should have a relationship with God. Um, And it sort of hit this climactic point, I think, in history when not only did the um, sort of region of faith start to change the way it communicated and interacted, but philosophers started to say, you know what, we're actually wired a little bit differently than we've always assumed. Because what we've assumed for since the beginning of time is um, I, I know others and am known and therefore I am. My identity is grounded in the community that I'm a part of, the family that I'm a part of, the nation that I'm a part of. And in 1637, René Descartes, this French philosopher, he wrote um, one of the statements that was the springboard for the Enlightenment. He said, I think, therefore, I am. Now, here's what his statement did. His statement took his identity out of community and it placed it in whom? Himself. Right, so, so this is the mantra of the Enlightenment. This is the mantra of modernity that, that we think, therefore, we are. So, so and like I said, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad or good. It's just reality that that isn't the way that the world has always been. Before Rene Descartes and before the printing press, when, when communities would wrestle with and grapple with Scripture and they found their identity in being part of a whole, not as an individual, I think the mantra was probably more like, I know and am known, therefore I am, instead of in the 1600s to the really present day, I think, therefore I am. In fact, you could probably argue that it's been an evolution now to, I tweet, therefore I am. (laughs) Right? So, So now I'm defined not by what I think or what I think I know, but what people think about me without really knowing me. I think it's a subtle attempt to get back to the way we were innately created, and I think it falls radically short of what it intends to do. Have you noticed that most of the inventions that are being created today serve to distance you from other people rather than bring you closer? Um, So you can go to the grocery store now, and you don't have to even talk to the person in line checking you out. You can circumvent all that and go to the self-checkout. 
because this is all about me and I don't want to have to talk to anybody else and I don't want to wait in line with anybody. And in fact, the line's removed from even the checkout place, so I don't even have to talk to anybody near me. Praise be to God. Right? I mean, hey, soon, soon, you're just going to be able to order groceries on Amazon and have a drone deliver them to your house. You don't even need to get out of your pajamas to go pick them up. Praise the Lord, right? (laughs) And this is the drum that modernity beats. And you know what? It's trickled into our lives of faith as well. This idea that I am my just autonomous self and I can make it on my own. And if I try harder, then I can do it. And you know what? I don't need other people. And in many ways, it's this response to the reality that being a human is painful. I don't know of any other good alternatives, but being a human is painful. People are painful. Being in relationship with other people is painful. Um, In 2013, there was a movie that came out. It was called Her. It's a movie. It's a social commentary on where we find ourselves today. Um, Because in this movie, Her, Joaquin Phoenix develops um, an intimate, close, personal relationship with his operating system. Um, Essentially with his phone, with his planner. He he falls in love with her. (laughs) As if that's possible. But if it were, we would want it to be. (laughs) wouldn't we? Here's what he's saying in this movie, the director, is saying, hey, we're getting further and further away from the very thing that makes us human. And we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing against it. When will we drop our arms and say, maybe I was created for something else? See, this has trickled not only into our philosophy of what it means to be um, a human or an American or a person in general, but it's also trickled its way down into our lives of faith. Uh, I read a really interesting article this week. You you may not be able to see this graph quite um, as well as I'd like you to, but there was a person who wrote this article, and what he was trying to wrestle with is these phrases that have become so commonplace, especially in Western Western Christianity and Western faith. Um, One is the phrase personal relationship with Jesus. The other is personal faith. So he did this Google, what does he call it? What's it called? Google, Google, um, Google Graham. And what it did was it crawled the web, um, it crawled books, it crawled articles, and it tried to um, pinpoint when those phrases, personal relationship with Jesus and personal faith, started to actually be said. Do you know that for all intensive purposes, the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus was on nobody's radar screen or at least on their lips before 1970? Let that sink in for a moment. Let that sink in for a moment. Before 1970, the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus or a personal faith in God wasn't really a part of people's thought pattern. So I just want to throw something out there to you. I wonder if we've lost something. I wonder if 
Um, all of our great advances in technology, I wonder if um, the printing press that means that you probably have 20 of these in your house and can do your own personal study, which, which I want to say is a good thing, please do it. I wonder if those ideas and those inventions and that quote-unquote progress has actually served to cripple us from something that we needed even more. See, because I think we would agree that community is something that's good and that's needed. But I don't think that we would agree that it's needed in the way that Scripture would suggest that it is, that it's needed more maybe than even just a personal relationship with Jesus, that we need a communal relationship with Jesus, that we're not saved to just be this autonomous self, but we're saved actually into a family, into a community, into relationship. And if we lose these things, we lose the very core of what it means to be people of faith. See, I think that we would agree that community definitely enhances our life. But I don't know that we would agree that it's something that shapes our life. I don't know that we would agree that it's like the air that we breathe. It's, it's that necessary that at the very core of our being and our DNA is this need for other people. And I mean, here's, here's the deal. You, you could be in this room today, sitting next to somebody you might even be married to and feel extremely lonely. And there's something deep down inside of us that knows that that's not the best that God created us for. What I'd like to do is to propose to you that um, some of the recent progress we've made has actually crippled not just our quality of life, but the type of people that we're becoming. And if we can't reclaim that, I think we're gonna lose something that's central to not only being followers of Jesus, but something that's central to being humans. <laughs> We need one another. It's the way that God created us. And here's the thing. I know it's messy. And I know it hurts. And I know people can be mean. Not you, but just hypothetical people. <laughs> and that it's often easier to just say, you know what? I think, therefore, I am, and I don't need you, and you can know me by my tweets, but you can't get inside to see what's really there. And can, can I just say to you, I think the gospel creates a ground for us to be community, to be together in this journey of life and faith. And not that that's a good thing, but that that's an absolutely necessary thing. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, um, you know that we've been in a series that we're calling The Beautiful Journey. And we're looking at what it looks like to be made into the image of God, to be transformed by God's spirit, to grow, to thrive. And in our sort of climactic verse in the study of 2 Corinthians we've been doing, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. I don't know that I noticed this to the extent that, that I now see it upon first reading it. So let me invite you into what is a fairly recent discovery for me. Verse 18, and we all, time out. See, because here's what Paul's going to launch into a discussion about in this verse, transformation. 
what it looks like to, quote, be transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. And he starts off with this plural, we all, we all with unveiled face. So if you're a person of faith this morning, this is you. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Here's what I think Paul would say to you and to I that we behold far better together than we do alone. That we behold Jesus and are being transformed by him far better together than we do alone. We all, he says, all this community, new covenant community of faith who are defined by the righteousness that's given to them in a new heart, the sufficiency that they have in Jesus and the freedom that they're under through the spirit. This community, he says, is being transformed together as they look and gaze upon Jesus. Here's what he doesn't say. You, as an individual, are being transformed. And you know what? God never promises to transform an individual. He promises to build a church. And that's a community of people. And so here's what we're going to learn today. Here's what we're going to see. Here's what we're going to try to sink anchor into. And it's going to rub against everything that we are in our autonomous, individualistic selves. Okay? is that gospel community is the soil for spiritual formation. Gospel community is the soil of spiritual formation. Community, let's say it another way. Community is the context in which we practice and remember who Jesus is and our faith in him. Now, Does your individual relationship, quote unquote, with Jesus have an implication on what you bring back to the whole? Absolutely, yes, it does. But God's primary mode of transforming you is transforming you together, us together, not alone. Look at the the way that Peter writes this to um, the church. He says this. He says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a person for his own possession. No, 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 no. A people. All of these are plural. That you may proclaim, that that you all may proclaim. If we're in Texas, that that y'all may proclaim, or all y'all might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Have you ever stopped to recognize how central being part of a body, being part of a community, being in relationship is to the fact that you have been redeemed in Jesus? Here's the way that that the great pastor and author Tim Keller puts it when he says this. He says, we live in a culture in which the interests and desires of the individual take precedence over those in the family, the group, or the community. And as a result, a high percentage of people want spiritual growth without losing their independence to a church or an organized institution. 
There is no way, he writes, there's no way you will be able to grow spiritually apart from a deep involvement in a community of other believers. You can't live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends, without family of believers in which you find place. Here's a statement. We behold the glory of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ better together, or, or maybe, maybe even we might go further to say only together. Not alone. Not alone. Now, the fact that a message like this would be, one, offensive to people, and two, new, is a new development, as it were, on the scene of humanity. Because <laughs> before all the things that we talked about earlier, before that, people would have gone, well, yeah, of course. Of course. We're, we're in this together. We, we need each other. Quite literally, we need each other to live. If the farmer doesn't grow the food, then I'm out, right? And everybody needs to do their part. It's only recently that we would push back against this. But we all know, we all know deep down inside that it's true. Earlier this summer, I had the chance to climb a 14er with some friends. And I don't know if you've had the chance to do that, but, but it's, um, it's an interesting deal because you get up onto the peak and you start looking around. And it's like, Oh, 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 hey, you see that? You see that over there? I think, that's a, I think that's an elk walking up that ledge. Oh, you see that? You see that over there? That valley is the valley that leads to um, the Mount of the Holy Cross. And I think that's that mountain. And, and look at it. You can sort of see that cross in the mountain. And, and oh my goodness, have you, have you seen how blue the sky is today? And then everybody sort of contributes to this picture of the whole. And we all know. We all know that it's way different to climb a mountain alone than it is to climb one with people. Because alone, you stand on it and you think, therefore you are. But together, you share. And it's a bigger part of the truer whole that you have the chance to see because of each other. This is the way that God designed the church to be. Now, just a quick timeout. You do realize that you can't theologically go to church, okay? Theologically, it's impossible for you to go to church. This is not South Fellowship. You are South Fellowship. You can't go to church. You are the church, And the church is designed to be a group of called out people who are a redemptive, familial powerhouse for the working of God in the lives of the individuals here and in the world. That's his purpose. That he would change us together to change the world. All right, in the next few minutes that I have together, I just want to show you how this passage unpacks that and and plays that out shows us that community is the context in which we remember and practice the gospel, that there are things that we cannot do, that lives of faith necessitate, that we can't do alone. We can't do alone. We need each other to be in the game and we need each other to be in our lives. Here's the way that Paul begins this section of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse Three. And what I want to do is point out to you the fact that the personal pronouns used here are plural, okay? So the yous are second personal pronouns, plural. They could, you could say y'all, 
Okay, now I had somebody come up to me afterwards and say, you know what, y'all is actually individual if you're from Texas, it's all y'all, but I don't know if I can go that far. Okay, so we'll see what comes out. But, and all y'all show that all y'all are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of of the living God. Okay, just a quick time out. He doesn't look at an individual and go, hey, you know what? You have been changed by God and you have a new heart and you are the redeemed. He goes, you all are people of faith. Y'all are, all y'all. God has written on your heart, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Such is the confidence that we, this is plural, intentionally have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Here's what Paul does at the onset of this beautiful, glorious chapter, and it's a transition that happens really in verse 14, where he starts to go a little bit more plural than he did singular, but he says, this idea of being a people, a new covenant community of faith, is not something that we can do alone, but it's something we do together. It's something that we are being made into together. So here's what he speaks into the life of this new covenant community. Hey, not only are you redeemed by the grace and mercy of God, he's given you a new heart, but the person that's sitting next to you who's a person of faith, they've been given a new heart too. So will you turn to the person next to you and say, your heart looks a little bit new today. Now, 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 okay, so let's get, let's get, sort of peel the onion back a little bit. Why has God, by his grace, through his spirit, given people a new heart? Why has he done this? Why has he so beautifully and powerfully beckoned us back into relationship with him? Well, here's what the scriptures are going to say. They're going to say that because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with Christ. So the reason that God gives people by his grace through spirit and through faith in him a new heart is because he loves you. Now, this starts to change things a little bit. Because if he loves you, um, he also loves all y'all you. And it radically transforms the way that we see the world. It radically transforms the people that we sit next to on a Sunday morning or lay in bed next to at night or work next to Monday through Friday. That the narrative we start to live out of is our redemptive God is in love with his creation and longs to be with them. And so you will never meet, will you look up at me for just a second? You will never meet a person, you will never lay eyes on a person who does not have value to their creator. And this is part of the role of community. We, we start to have this vision of, well, if Jesus did this, and if God is like this, and if God loves his, his creation enough to die for them, then, then, well, we should probably love him too. And we should probably be a voice of that in a world that wants to just tear down and push down and tell people they're worthless. And people buy that narrative. And it's the community 
of God that reminds people of their God-given value. And so part of the role of the new covenant community is to shape, reshape the narrative that most people have playing in their mind. Because here's the narrative that most people have playing in their mind, and you may relate to this. Most people have what we call a shame narrative. It's, I'm not good enough, and here's why. I'm not accepted because of what I've done, and here's why. I could never add up, and here's why. And when we hear those things, they're so sticky, they stick in our brain like crazy, yes? Okay, you don't have to say it out loud, but I, I've talked with enough of you, and I know my internal dialogue enough to know it's true. And here's the role of community. The role of community is to rewind and to say, listen, the reason that you're here is because God loves you. The reason he died for you is because he's for you. The reason his grace is sufficient enough for you is because the all-powerful created being finds that you are valuable. Now, here's the thing. You can say that to yourself and it can mean next to nothing. And see, most self-help is just that. It's about the self. And what we've lost is that other people's words have power in our life and God uses them for redemptive purposes because gospel community is a soil in which spiritual formation happens. He uses those words to start to make the heart come alive. I've had the chance this last week to watch a, a TED talk by a woman named Brittany Brown. She's brilliant. And here's what she says about the shame that many people carry. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Silence, secrecy, and judgment. Now, you take a second step back and recognize how many of those are communal. That if the community of faith starts to speak value into people's lives, starts to remind them of what the scriptures say are true about them, people start to come alive and, and shed this shame narrative uh, for uh, what Brittany Brown calls a, a worthy life. Not in our own worthiness, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. She points out, this is awesome, she points out, the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging simply believe that they are worthy of being loved and belong. So I wonder what role you play in that for this community of faith. I wonder what truth God might have you speak as people lovingly and graciously share with you what really goes on in their head. And see, that's the problem with this. We can talk about this all we want, but, but it takes vulnerability for you to invite people in to what's really going on in your life. And that's the way that God starts to bring about his healing. So we have this beautiful, wonderful, um, actually really powerful opportunity to speak into each other's lives the gospel that Jesus loves them that he's for them that he died for them that he values them and maybe that's the song that we just start to sing as a church I don't know if you've ever noticed that's not that's not a song that's sung best as a solo that's a song that sounds best with a choir
are the saints gathered together. And they don't just say, I'm the redeemed. They say, you are the redeemed. And we are the redeemed. See, the song of the redeemed is a plural. We are. There's power in that, friends. There's power in that. Paul continues in verse 12. um, And I'd encourage you, you can read through this. In more detail later, look for all the personal plurals. It's just phenomenal. It'll blow up, hopefully, in your heart and your soul as you read it. But he says this in verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So, so second thing he says, not only is that we have new hearts, but we have new hope. Have you ever noticed that one of the best ways to lose sight of hope is to isolate yourself. I mean, think back to times in your life where you were just walking through something difficult and something hard and you started to isolate yourself from other people and hope started to fade and despair started to grow. Hope is a communal activity. It's why all the sacraments that we celebrate are communal. You don't sit in your home at night and celebrate communion alone. Um, good luck baptizing yourself. <laughs> Why? Because these are pictures of what it looks like to live as the family and the people of God, not as the person of God, but the people, the people of God. So the second thing we see is not only that we remind people of their value, but we point people towards their hope. We point people towards their hope. I love the way that Paul writes this in the book of Colossians in chapter one, verses three through six. He says this, we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for all y'all. Since we heard of all y'all's faith in Jesus and of the love that all y'all have for the saints because of the hope, now catch this, because of the hope that's laid up for all y'all. Now, the hope isn't just laid up for you. The hope is laid up for the person next to you also. This is a hope that we gather around as a community of people. And we, when we lose sight of that, hope starts to fade. It's the reason that after every softball game we lose, which has been close to 20 in a row, I believe, but we gather around in the circle And before we repent of whatever we've done wrong that could cause such a drastic game to have happened. No, I'm just kidding. But here's what we do. We gather around and we say, you know what? We're we're getting a little better. Uh, We made a few less errors. We got a few more hits. We didn't get 10 runs today. Maybe. And here's what we do. We start to hope about a better tomorrow. And it never happens well individually. I don't know if you've ever tried to just muster up hope on your own. But hope is spoken into you before it's believed by you. Hope is spoken into you before it's believed by you. Sometimes multiple times. Hope is just simply this conviction, the confidence in a good future. So I don't know if you know your markers um, of when you're starting to lose hope and probably becoming isolated. My two are bitterness and cynicism. 
okay? So when I start to just see that, that my world is all that there is, I start to carry this bitterness and I start to carry this cynicism with me and I need people to speak into that for me because it's hard for me to climb out of that on my own. But the way God's designed us is that people's words have power. The hard part of that, you look up at me for just a second, the hard part of that is in order for people to speak hope to you, you need to open up pieces of your heart that share your despair with them. That's not easy. I get it, because people hurt, and people sting, and the words that they say make it far easier to grow a callus over our heart and our soul than to open it up and say, will you speak hope in? I get it. But I'll tell you, God only builds a community. He doesn't build individuals. He builds a church. That was his promise. And we need to be the type of people who with the right kind of people, safe people, open up and say, I think I'm losing hope. I think it's slipping through my hands and I need you to to speak into my life things that are true about me. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem with most accountability relationships. Okay, I'm gonna get on my soapbox for just a second, okay? Most accountability relationships are built around sin management, okay? So, so here's the way they play out usually. It's people get together and they talk about how bad they are, right? What'd your week look like? I was terrible. Here's what I did, X, Y, and Z. And then the other person goes, well, here's what I did, X, Y, and Z. We should pray for each other. Okay, let's do that. So they pray for one another. And here's what happens next week. How was your week? It was terrible. Here's what I did, X, Y, and Z. How was yours? Terrible. Here's what I did. And the idea behind accountability that God invites us to in scripture is one, realizing our sin, but two, maybe more importantly, realizing that Jesus has already died for it, redeemed it. You're clean from it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, this is the... This is the power of new covenant community. It's speaking hope into people's lives, speaking truth into people's lives, reminding people who they are in Jesus because we forget, we forget. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now, okay? Verse 17, we're gonna land the plane here. It says, and now... The Lord is spirit. After talking about the the hope that we have, the boldness that we have, the fact that our hearts are now unveiled to see the glory of Jesus clearly. He says, and now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Yes. So new covenant community. The, The soil the gospel soil that God grows people and transforms them spiritually. We remind people of their value. We point people to their hope and we call people to embrace and walk in the freedom that Jesus purchased for them, signed, sealed, and delivered on the cross, walking out of the grave. That's what we do. We remind people they're no longer slaves to sin. It doesn't get the final say. 
We remind people that they're no longer under law, but that they're under grace. We remind people that they have peace with God by the faith in which they now stand. They stand wholly, fully, completely in the grace of God. It flows over them like a waterfall. We speak it into their life. We remind people, you are a son or daughter of the king, that he loves you and he's for you and you don't need to fear going to him. He's not some Zeus type character in the sky ready to zap you with a lightning bolt if you don't do X, Y, and Z that he wants you to do. He's a loving, benevolent, gracious father who's come to redeem. So come home. There's freedom to do that because of the blood of Christ. And we speak freedom into people's lives and we remind people of them because I think most Christians think they're still slaves to sin. The only problem with that is scripture. And so we have this beautiful opportunity, friends, to walk together, to remind people of the grace of God. And to behold his glory. Um, one of my favorite all-time movies is a Shawshank Redemption. And there's this really poignant scene in the movie when a man who's been in jail for decades is released. His name is Brooks. And before he takes his life, Brooks says this. These prison walls, he says, are funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. Enough time passes, so you get dependent on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway, he says. And I just wonder how many followers of Jesus, they live in this narrative of bondage and chains and hopelessness, and God's going, Jesus walked out of the grave. He walked out of the grave. And a new creation has dawned. And you are the new creation with a new heart, with a new righteousness, with a new sufficiency, with a new boldness, with a new hope, and with a new freedom. It's yours. Walk into it. Step into it. We don't do that very well alone. We do it far better together. This passage, it just has gotten into me in a way that I can't really shake. I, I keep trying to peel back the layers and mind the depths of it, and I just can't seem to get to the end. I think that's one of the beautiful parts about our God. But listen to what Paul said again. And we all, all us all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory. To the next. So that means that you are being transformed into the image of Jesus and you're getting more and more glorious. It also means that the person next to you, if they're a person of faith, as they gaze upon the face of Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Christ, as they gaze on Jesus, they're becoming more glorious too. And you know what? This might sound heretical, but, but I'm just going to say it. I'm going to let it just sink in, and I want you to try to, to just uh, absorb it, okay? One of the ways you see Jesus best. Okay, so if he's transforming the person next to you into the image of Christ, one of the places you see the face of Jesus best 
is in the people you're surrounded with. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his church, you and I. And he says, the glory you've given to me, I have given to them. As in he's handing it over. And not detached from him, but he's giving us himself. And as he dwells in us and as we see him, we become more and more glorious. Start to look a little bit more like Jesus. So one of the ways you see Jesus is by looking at the people around you. When was the last time you saw your marriage that way? When was the last time you, you saw your friendships that way? Your roommates that way? Your coworkers that way? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God forms us. Transformation. He transforms us, shapes us, molds us into the image of Jesus together. Or not at all. I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the prevailing metaphors of Scripture is that you are part of a body. There's not a lot of parts of your body that grow all that well independent of the rest of the body. None that I can think of. And this is the picture that the scriptures give us of what it looks like to be people of faith. You see, God transforms us in the soil of gospel community. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took each one of his disciples aside individually and he took them into a corner and he broke bread with them as individuals moving from one to the other because he wanted them to have a personal faith in Jesus. It's not what he did. It's not what he did. Our savior, here's what he did on the night that he was betrayed. He gathered his friends around the table this picture of welcome, this picture of community, this declaration of you can try to do this alone, but you're gonna fail and you need each other on this journey. And so he invites them around a table and around a table, he inaugurates the new covenant, the new covenant of faith in Jesus. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been reminding themselves that their faith is birthed at the table in community with one another, in community with God, in a beautiful invitation to come and to be part of who he is and what he's doing. I pray that as you come this morning, you might remember you're part of something far bigger than yourself and far more glorious than just you, but that you're part of a community of faith and that you need the people around you to become the person that God intends and dreams that you would become. The table's open to all who would put their faith in Jesus. If you're not there this morning, I'd ask that you just allow the elements to pass you by. Actually, we're gonna come up, so just you can stay in your seat. But I would encourage you, is there any reason you wouldn't wanna put your faith in Jesus this morning? Um, he's better than everything you're holding on to. Bible says if we put our faith in him, our hope in him, declare him as Lord, repent and turn from our sin and our autonomy, he would invite us into his kingdom. I'd invite you to do that if you haven't yet this morning. Let's pray and then we'll celebrate communion together.
King Jesus, we love you. We gather around your table as a community of the redeemed. Lord, help us speak into each other's life well. That gospel words might be on our tongue. That we might remember the redemption that's ours in Jesus. And the hope that you've paid for already. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.